Welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Centralia, Washington. During each episode, you will hear the sermons, liturgy, discussions, and interviews from the various weekly gatherings here at Christ Covenant Church. If you would like to find out more, please visit us online at ChristCovenantCentralia.com. That's ChristCovenantCentralia.com. Please enjoy the following audio. Let us rise and worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity. And in whose spirit there is no God. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old. Through my glory all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledge my sin unto thee. And my iniquity have I not did. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. And thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. So lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us pray. O Lord Jesus Christ, wisdom of God the Father, give us understanding and inform us with thy precepts. Guide us with thine eye in the way we go, that under thy leading we may surely come to thee, who art the way, the truth, and the life. Wherefore we say, Glory be to the Father, the Lord to whom we confess our sins. Glory be to the Son, the way wherein we shall go. And glory be to the Holy Ghost, who informs us and teaches us, as it was in the beginning, is now and never shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. When my family and I uh, lived in Europe, we had the occasion to go to garmisch partenkirchen where the 1936 Winter Olympics were. Hitler was on the throne then, and, and um, that's where we learned to ski as a family. So when I was learning to ski, I remember a habit that I had that was an impediment to me becoming any kind of proficient skier. When I approached the edge of the mountain to point my skis down the hill, and as I allowed gravity to bring me over the edge, I would lean back in my bindings uh, for the nearest portion of ground that was familiar to me. Well, where is the nearest portion of ground? Well, it's immediately behind you because it's closest to you. And that caused a problem with me because that's contrary to what you need to be doing. The thing I needed to do was to lean forwards or frontwards down the mountain away from the security I felt was behind me. I needed to overcome the familiar and push on in my faith or on in faith in my descent. Now, I use this illustration to set up sharing a scripture that I've had on my heart this week, uh, one, that I, one that I've read quite a number of times, and over the course of my Christian walk, I've truly enjoyed, and that's from Acts chapter 9. And this chapter deals with events before, during, and after Saul's conversion. And God is giving Ananias commands to go to Saul. Now, remember, Saul has quite the ferocious reputation as a fire-breathing Jew, who hates Christians, and Ananias describes to God his reluctance to even go into the presence of Saul. And here's the verse in uh, in Acts chapter 9. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. 
for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. I thought about those in the Bible chosen by God to be his instrument, and it always entailed these chosen ones to forsake the familiar and endure much hardship. Abraham, Job, Moses, the prophets, John the Baptist, the list is very long. The list comes all the way here to Centralia, Washington. There is much hardship in obedience. And when we're obedient and bearing fruit, what did our Lord say? He said, every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth what? More fruit. If you bring forth fruit, you will have to endure affliction. Rest assured, if you are a child of God, you will be no stranger to the rod. So rejoice, Christian, that such fruitful times are in store for you. For in them you will be weaned from reaching back for the familiarity of earth and made ready to stretch forward for heaven. You will be delivered from clinging to the present and made to long for those eternal things that await to be revealed to you. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins. So as you are able, let us kneel before the Lord. Father, we confess all of these sins to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let us rise for the assurance of God's pardon. The enemies of God are brought down and fallen. But we are risen and stand upright. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is God's mercy towards them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Saints of Christ Covenant Church, because you have confessed your sins, holding nothing back, it is my joy to announce to you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. Thanks be to God. We have two sermon texts this morning. The first is from Proverbs chapter 18, verse 22, which says, Whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing, and obtaineth favor of the Lord. And the second sermon text is from Proverbs chapter 24, verse 27, which says, Prepare thy work without, make it fit for thyself in the field, and afterwards build thine house. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the gift of marriage, and yet we also lament that marriage has not been treated as a gift by many in our generation. Instead, it has been dishonored and profaned even in the church. And so now there are many Christians who desire marriage but have yet to find a godly spouse. And so we ask for your help now as we deal with this uh, problem of singleness and the work of preparing for marriage. Give us your spirit in Jesus' name, and amen. Amen. Well, this morning we continue our series on the Christian family. This is part four. We're going to take a little breather uh, this week to step back and talk about how to prepare for marriage I don't know about you, but I needed a breather because um, next week we're going to talk about how to fix a bad marriage. And uh, really, the best way to not have a bad marriage is to uh, obey God and do what he says in those years before you get married, right? Uh, prepare well for that lifelong covenant. So that's what we want to do this morning. And I would encourage you, especially those of you who are young, if you are in high school, if you are uh, looking ahead to being married one day, this sermon is especially uh, for you. There are uh, three, three questions that I want to answer from Scripture in this 
sermon, and this, this sermon is going to be more like three mini sermons, okay? Um, this is going to be a bit different than, than usual. There's three questions I want to answer, and they are these. Number one, is singleness a gift? Uh, number two, what should you look for in a potential spouse? And number three, how should you be preparing for marriage in the meantime? Is singleness a gift? What to look for in a spouse? And then how to prepare in the meantime? That's where we're going. So number one, is singleness a gift? How would you answer that question? Uh, the text that most people point to when they argue that singleness is a gift is uh, 1 Corinthians 7. So um, if, if you have a Bible and want to turn there, you can. Uh, we'll spend a few moments uh, looking at this section of Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 7 to 9. And this is what it says. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. He says, for I would that all men were even as I myself, but every man hath his proper gift of God, one after this manner and another after that. I say, therefore, to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I. But if they cannot contain, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. So the question is, what is the gift that Paul is referring to here? In verse 8, we see that Paul has directed this command to quote the unmarried and widows. And the word for unmarried here does not refer to a young single people. He's going to address that group later in uh, chapter 7 under the, the heading virgins. He says, now concerning virgins. That's that group. But th this category of unmarried here refers to men uh, whose wives have likely died, what we might call widowers. Uh, in Greek, this is explicit because this is a, this is a, a male group. Uh, you can just look at the grammatical gender of that word there. So Paul identifies himself with this group when he says, it is good for them if they abide even as I. This is one of the reasons why I think Paul was married. There are other reasons for that, and this would be one of them. He's explicitly identifying himself with this group of widowers, that's the male version, unmarried, uh, depending on your translation, and then uh, widows, which we all know is a female uh, a person who has had their, their husband die. So uh, just as Paul is unmarried now, his wife has died, he has been given the gift, and notice what the gift is. The gift is not singleness. The gift is continence. He is not burning with lust. And that is the gift. The gift is not celibacy or singleness. It is the spiritual gift of sexual self-control. You are content. You're not burning with passion. That is the gift that Paul has. Notice also that Paul says that not every unmarried person has this gift. In verse 7 he says, But every man hath his proper gift of God, one after this manner and another after that. Uh, Jesus says very similarly in Matthew chapter 19, he says, all men cannot receive this saying, save they to whom it is given. For there are some eunuchs which were so born from their mother's womb. And there are some eunuchs which were made eunuchs of men. And there be eunuchs which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He that is able to receive it, uh, let him receive it. In other words, if you still have uh, the physical ability to procreate and a continual desire for sex, then you know you just don't have that gift of continence, and that's okay. And Paul says, if that's you, it is better to get married than to burn. So singleness is not in itself a gift. Continence is the gift. And only those who have this gift uh, should 
remain as Paul remains in that state of celibacy. Uh, This is important because it changes the way you should think about singleness. Rather than seeing singleness as a gift that you must uh, struggle to embrace if you don't have that gift of continence, you should treat it as something that God says is not good. What What is the thing that God says about Adam even before there is sin in the world? It's not good for that man to be alone. It's not good to burn. This uh, not goodness is going to feel uh, very different depending on what stage of life you're in. So if you are a young man in high school going through puberty, that is a time of real testing. It is a temporary season where your body is changing a lot. Right? Your voice might be cracking. Your, ho- your hormones are raging. And you must learn to rule over your passions. That is really the test of being a young man. Can you rule your appetites? That desire for sex is good, but outside of marriage, it will destroy you. And so that sex drive that God has given you, the sex drive of a young man must be harnessed and channeled into honest labor, productive work. A powerful engine is good, but you still need a steering wheel and brakes so you don't run off the road. So that's what the not goodness of being unmarried can feel like when you are a young man. Now, if you are an adult and singleness or widowhood has lasted longer than you would have liked, you also should treat that as a trial, as a test, as an affliction to endure by faith. God says it's not good for you to be alone. And yet because of sin and death, that is the world that we all live in. And God grieves with us over how hard that is. You think about Jesus. Jesus never had an earthly wife. And so we know that the unmarried life is lawful. It's sanctified by God. does not make you less in the church or the kingdom. But if you don't have the gift of continence, that unmarried state is going to be a trial for you to endure. And so you should put unwanted singleness under the same category as other afflictions in the Bible. And when you do that, you will see that God has a lot to say to you, right? What do you do if you're uh, experiencing a season of unwanted singleness? Well, James says you count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith creates patience, right? And isn't patience the gift we all want uh, to have, right? There's no shortcuts for learning patience. Paul says uh, similarly in Romans 5, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That is a a passage to memorize. Joy and hope are just as possible and even commanded when you are single, just as it is when you are married. And suffering gives you a unique opportunity to learn lessons that can only be learned in the wilderness. The wilderness of not good, that land of not good that you live in, that wilderness of singleness is where God makes men out of boys. It is where he brings women to the end of themselves so that they put no trust in the flesh, but in God alone who raises the dead. This is what Abraham and Sarah learned from that long trial of barrenness. This is what Jacob had to learn, right? Jacob, the, the peop- who becomes the people of Israel, you might not know this, but 
Does anyone know how old he was when he married uh, uh, Rachel and Leah? Leah? He was 84. Jacob was 84 years old when he married Leah and Rachel, and his rival brother Esau was out, you know, fornicating with Edomite girls. That is the distinction. That was the trial. And uh, you remember, how does Rachel die? She dies giving birth to Benjamin. So I think they only spend about 14 years together. And then, boom, he loses his, his beloved wife. Joseph is about eight years old when his mom dies. And he's got you know, a new little, little brother who will grow up without a mom. That was Jacob's life. That's a hard life. And that's just the beginning of the trials for Jacob. Psalm 73 says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Who do you have in heaven but God? Is there anything on earth that you desire besides God? When your flesh and your heart are failing, is God the strength of your heart and your portion forever? Unless you happen to die uh, at the same time as your spouse, all of us are going to experience singleness, loneliness, death. And what should keep us going, whether we are married or unmarried, widowed, divorced, whatever, is the all-surpassing worth of knowing God, of having God as your portion forever, as your strength when your heart and your flesh fail. And the thing is, if God is the source of your joy, that means that joy is always possible. There's no season of life. This is how Paul can say things like rejoice always, because when God is the source of your joy, he is the common denominator of joy in your life. So if you're enduring the trial of unwanted singleness or any other trial, then you, like Jacob, must wrestle with God and not let go. You must cling to the truth that God knows what is good for you. He does not withhold any good thing from those who walk uprightly, and he knows what you can handle. He is not going to test you beyond your ability. 1 Corinthians 10.13 Yes, he will stretch you, but he will give you the grace to endure. So is singleness a gift? Well, not in itself, but you can still thank God for it. You can still thank God in the same way that you thank him for other trials, for they are the means by which he rids you of self-reliance, of pride. It's how he makes you strong in him. And in that sense, all of God's providences, even and especially the hard ones, are gifts from him. Now, in addition to enduring, the trial of unwanted singleness, God also wants you to be proactive in seeking a spouse. Just like we ask God for daily bread, right? This is what we pray in the Lord's Prayer, and then we head off to work. So also you should pray for a husband or a wife and then get busy searching for one. Uh, Some of you know my pastor, Doug Wilson. He likes to say, "God uh, God does not steer parked cars. God does not park steered cars. God does not steer parked cars. And if you are a conservative, Bible-believing Christian, uh, the hard reality is it's just going to be really hard to find a good spouse. This is a huge problem in the church. It's a huge problem in 
our culture, it's hard to find a like-minded spouse who, who shares a lot of the same values as you. Solomon says in Proverbs 31.10, who can find a virtuous woman for her price is far above rubies? Right? Quality candidates for marriage are scarce. And that means finding a virtuous woman or a virtuous man is going to take work. So where do you start? Where do you start? Well, uh, before you can know where to look, you need to know what you are looking for. What would God have you look for in a potential spouse? So let's move to question two here. What should you look for in a potential spouse? Uh, the first and most important quality is that that person must be godly. Right? We are assuming here, of course, which we have to do in these days, they are the opposite sex. Okay, They are an eligible man or woman. And the non-negotiable quality they must possess is true godliness. You cannot just say, I think they go to church somewhere. Okay? They need to actually be godly. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. He says also in 1 Corinthians 7.39, the wife is bound by the law as long as her husband liveth. But if her husband be dead, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will only in the Lord. Only in the Lord. So that is the absolute kind of bare minimum, non-negotiable when it comes to looking for a spouse. Paul says, if any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema maranatha. So the question you have to ask is, do, do they and do I genuinely love the Lord Jesus? If the answer is yes, that's not just the end, right? Don't just walk down the aisle. Then you proceed to ask other questions. And this is really where we move into the realm of Christian prudence and wisdom. Meaning, uh, scripture is going to give us general principles, proverbs, and then we have to be mature enough to apply those principles to our unique situation. And this is usually where people make a lot of dumb uh, decisions. It is uh, biblically lawful for any eligible Christian man to marry any eligible Christian woman, but that doesn't mean it's a good idea. There is no law against carrying hot coals around in your hands, as far as I'm aware. But that doesn't mean you won't get burned. Just because they say they are a believer does not make the yoke equal. Okay, they're a Christian. They go to church. Are they a Christian feminist? Is he a Roman Catholic? D does one of you want 10 kids and the other just wants one? Do you vote the same way? Are your politics aligned? Does one of you want to live in the city and the other wants the country life? As it says in Amos 3, can two walk together unless they be agreed? There are countless reasons why a lawful marriage could also be a terrible marriage. And there are many bad Christian marriages that end in divorce. And many of them could have been prevented if both parties had sought pastoral wisdom, parental wisdom, and then listened to that counsel. Just to give you the sense of how scripture handles this, if a professing uh, Christian in our church started dating an unbeliever, we would call them to repent, and if they refused, we would suspend them. We would put them under church discipline. Right? They, they could not take the Lord's Supper until they repented. That's the seriousness of yoking yourself with an unbeliever. And when you look at the history of Israel, that's basically the problem. Idolatry and you know, cavorting with uh, pagan women is the constant problem uh, for the Israelites. Um, however... If a Christian man wanted to marry a Christian woman and everyone thought it was going to be a bad idea 
and, and had good reasons for it, we might advise against it. We might advise against it even strongly. But at the end of the day, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7.39, they are free to marry whom they will so long as it is in the Lord. So you speak your piece, you tell them, hey, if you do that, don't think it's going to go well. But, you know, you're not going to be put under church discipline just for being an idiot. OK, there has to actually be stubborn, willful disobedience in you. So that's how scripture handles these things. Uh, the bare minimum is that the potential spouse is a genuine believer. And then beyond that, we're in the realm of wisdom and Christian prudence. So let me just kind of draw together some of the key principles that scripture gives us when we are to look for a potential spouse. Uh, number one, do you both understand the meaning and purpose for marriage? Right? Do you guys remember the three, the three C's, right? Children, companionship, and chastity. Do you both understand what marriage is? The purpose of marriage is to raise godly children, to have help in dominion, and to be sexually pure for the Lord. If you don't agree that those are essential to marriage, it's probably going to be a bad idea to marry that person. Number two, do you want to raise children with that person? Do you want to make love to them for the rest of your life? Are you sexually attracted to them? If not, then it's probably a bad idea to marry them. Number three, uh, this one is specific to the men. Is she willing to follow you? Right? Is she teachable? Do you trust her to raise your children, to run your home, to be your helper? If the answer is no, then find someone else. Number four, this one is for the ladies. Do you respect him enough to submit to him? Right? We've had these sermons on authority and submission, and this is an incredible weight. And here is your chance before you don't have a choice, okay? Once you're married, you got to submit. So this is your opportunity to not submit. So if you don't respect him, do not marry him. This is your chance. So look for a spouse with those three purposes for marriage in mind. Can, can you see that man being the father of your babies? Can you see that woman raising uh, your children? Will they genuinely help you obey God? Marriage is becoming one flesh with someone. One flesh until death do you part. And after the decision to follow Christ, choosing a spouse is probably going to be the most impactful decision you will ever make. So do not enter into it lightly. After marriage, Paul says, your body no longer belongs to you. He says, your wife, your husband owns your body. That's what it says. So do not enter marriage lightly and seek out wise counsel as you do. Proverbs is full of warnings and guidance about the kind of people to avoid and the kind of people to surround yourself with. This is uh, the whole book of Proverbs are instructions from Solomon, a father, to his son to train him for kingship. And he spends a lot of time talking about the kind of women to stay away from, right? That's like the first eight chapters of the book is stay away from Lady Folly. Here's what she's like. And then pursue Mary, Lady Wisdom. And she's exemplified at the end of the book in Proverbs 31. So Proverbs is going to be your best friend, especially if you are a young man or you're a parent uh, trying to equip a, a young man or a young woman for marriage. I'll give you a few of the Proverbs uh, that relate to this. Proverbs 21.2 says, 
Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord pondereth the hearts. Proverbs 18.1 says, Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. You know what it's like to uh, not actually have an ear to hear. right? You, you just, you're attracted to that person, you want to marry them, and you just want everyone to give their blessing to it. This is what Proverbs is describing, and it says, that's actually foolish. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes. But is it right in the eyes of God? The fear of the Lord is where wisdom begins. And Proverbs says that in the multitude of wise counselors, there is safety. So be proactive. Look for a spouse. If you're young, especially, talk to your parents, right? Those are going to be, uh, you know, your, your spouse's in-laws one day. And get help from wise men and women as you uh, do this. Uh, the elders, the, the, the older ladies in the church, I'm sure would love to help you with this. Uh, finally, we come to our third question. And we actually come to our sermon text. Um, how should you be preparing for marriage in the meantime? So uh, here, here's a little thought experiment. A good exercise is to write down the qualities that you are looking for in a husband or wife. And then look at that list and honestly ask yourself, would this person that I've, you know, hypothetically drawn up, would that person be interested in me? Would I be on that person's list? Uh, again, my pastor, Doug Wilson, put it this way, uh, become the kind of person that the person you want to marry would want to marry. Say that again. Become the kind of person that the person you want to marry would want to marry. That's the riddle of preparing for marriage. Now, a scripture gives us some concrete guidance as to what we should aim for as we are preparing for marriage. So we come to our, our sermon text here, Proverbs 24, 27. Prepare thy work without and make it fit for thyself in the field and afterwards build thine house. And I'll read from, from a slightly different translation. Prepare your work outside. Get everything ready for yourself in the field and after that build your house. Wisdom is really all about timing. It's not about just knowing the right thing to say, but the right time to say it. And wisdom is about doing things in the order that God intended. And Proverbs is going to give you the order of things. When it comes to marriage, a man's work, a man's job, is chronologically prior to his getting married. The divine order is work and then a wife. Adam had a job before he got married. Name the animals, guard and keep the garden. That was his work before he was given a wife. And here in this proverb, Solomon says that before you build a house, you must prepare your outside work and make it ready in the field. What is this outside work? The outside work is uh, the plowing and planting and toil that goes into making something fruitful. It is diligence in every season, not laziness, and not working in starts and fits. If you are a procrastinator, uh, you're probably not ready for marriage. Proverbs 10, 4-5 says, He who has a slack hand becomes poor, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a wise son. He who sleeps in harvest is a son who causes shame. The wise son prepares by doing his chores. He works diligently in whatever field he is assigned to, and you know it's good work when that field is bearing fruit. 
and only after there is good fruit in the field of a young man is he ready to build a house. He's ready to find a wife. What is marriage? Marriage is about giving something to someone. Not just, you know, I get to have sex now. Marriage is about giving something to the other person. And so what do you have to give? Do you have surplus? Do you have fruit that will bless a wife or husband? If not, then you are not ready for marriage. If you want to build a beautiful home, it is going to require a lot of time, a lot of preparation, a lot of energy and resources and skill to build it. And if you uh, look at what, what was Solomon thinking about when he wrote this proverb, I mean, we can, we can speculate, but you think about what Solomon's own father did. He, he made all of these preparations for the building of God's house, right? He, he's making uh, treaties with Hiram of Tyre. He's getting, uh, you know, cedar. He's getting timber. He's getting gold and silver and stone. He's getting the labor. He's getting everything ready. David wasn't allowed to build the house, but Solomon was going to do it. And so uh, David prepares all of this outside work so that God's temple, God's house, can be this beautiful, glorious project. And that's something that Solomon is going to build. That building of God's house was an intergenerational building project. And marriage is very similar, right? Parents help their children. Parents should help their sons and daughters prepare that outside work. Parents equip and teach children to, to become independent. They resource them to become fruitful on their own, to be ready to build their own house. We see this uh, same language and image of building the house used also to refer to marriage and having children. You see this in Ruth. Uh, the book of Ruth and Proverbs are, are right next to each other in the Hebrew canon. And this is what Ruth 4.11 says. The Lord make the woman that is come into thine house like Rachel and like Leah, which two did build the house of Israel. In Genesis 2, remember when God is describing the creation of woman and it says, you know, God takes the rib out of Adam and, and forms the woman? In, in Hebrew, that word for form or made is, is just the word, the verb for to build, right? So it just says God built the woman. It's kind of an odd way of describing the creation of the woman. Adam is not, God does not build the man, right? He, he breathes life into him, but the woman, she's, She's crafted out of the man's, man's rib. She's, she's built. In Hebrew, it's bana. And you see the same verb, the same verb in our text, the building of the house. Because in the Bible, buildings and the bride are closely connected. Right? Solomon builds the temple, the house. And Paul says in the New Te Testament that you are a temple. Right? There is this connection all through Scripture between holy architecture and the human being. If you were to uh, look at Ezekiel's visionary temple from kind of a bird's eye drone view, you would see that it looked like a person. Right? It's shaped like a man. It's got shoulders and entrances and water flowing and a fire and it's describing a human person. So there's this connection in scripture between buildings, holy buildings, and the bride. And the lesson here is that a household is not built without at least two things happening first. Number one, God must build a woman. He must build a woman to be a suitable wife and helper. None of the animals could have been a fit helper and companion for Adam. God had to build a woman for him. And two, 
The other essential thing you need is a man to prepare. He has to be ready to literally house, feed, and clothe his future wife and children. Uh, when you read kind of the, the Hebrew or the, the rabbi commentators on this proverb, a lot of them will just uh, assume, they take for granted that you, you don't even get married until you've already built a house, <laughs> okay? Until you have built a house. I don't know if the Amish still do the kind of barn raising or the house raising thing. And different cultures have retained this idea where the building of the new newly married couple's house is this community project. But uh, so, so some Hebrew commentators say that. That is, that's a high bar, especially with, uh, you know, try to, try to build a house today. Good luck, good luck with that. Uh, but until both of these qualifications have been met, God has built a woman, a man has prepared his outside work, no marriage should happen. Practically speaking, this means a man should have an honest job and enough saved up to take care of a family. And a woman should be ready to raise godly children and assist her husband in running the household. So how do you prepare in the meantime? Well, let me just give you some uh, possibly painful practical wisdom. These are, these are not laws. This is just wise counsel. So men, young men, make sure that you have zero debt and money saved up. Uh, this was part of my whole job when I was in Moscow was just sitting down with guys and assessing their readiness to get married and, and then helping them prepare. And usually I would tell them, you want to have, you know, if you're in college, you want to have like three to $5,000 in the bank uh, before you get married, and ideally a lot more than that. And to do that, you're in school, you know, you're working a part-time job or whatever you're doing, that takes diligence, thrift, creativity, and wisdom to do, but it can be done. And of course, parents can be a total game changer here, right? If you have helped your children plan to save for this, or if you yourself have uh, savings set aside for this, you can be a great help in preparing your children for this. So a man has prepared his outside work when he has income, when he has fruit in the field, when there is surplus to share. That's, that's on the man's side. And uh, our society is against you being able to do this, okay? We make it very hard, very hard for young men to be able to do this. So yes, it's hard, but it still can, can be done. Ladies, for you, what does it take? This is how I want you to think. What does it take to run a productive household? What would it take to run a household that produces more than it consumes? That takes a lot of work, a lot of planning, and a lot of skill to do. So where do you start? St study uh, Proverbs 31. Th this is the picture of the exemplary wife. I, I just love this section at some point. I'll preach through this, but let me just give you the real summary drive-by of the Proverbs 31 woman, the kinds of things you can be preparing yourself or, or uh, mothers preparing your daughters for. The Proverbs 31 woman, her husband trusts her to run the home, right? So she has some management supervisory uh, competence, right? She has management skills. She knows how to shop, right? It's actually a skill to shop well. And this is something that the Proverbs 31 woman has. She's finding raw materials, wool and flax, and then she turns them into clothing, tapestry, merchandise. She's trading. She works with her hands, okay? We kind of have this idea of the lady as this genteel woman who never gets her hands dirty. That's not what you see in Proverbs 31. 
this woman, it says she's kind of ripped. Okay. Okay. It says her, she, you know, her arms are clothed, clothed with strength. Okay. So she's strong. She's probably been carrying kids for a lot of her life, but she works with her hands. Her house is well lit. Uh, there's oil in the lamp. Her cupboards are well stocked. She gets up early and prepares food for her household. She even prepares food for her servants. She buys a field. She plants a vineyard. She is generous to the poor and needy. And because she is hardworking, she has something to offer them. Her children are well clothed. They're warm in winter. She does not fear the storms. So that's the portrait of a virtuous wife. And it should make you kind of exhausted just when you, you read that. Like, how, how can anyone do this? Uh, but that's, that's the ideal, okay? And that's not something uh, anyone's going to be able to do overnight. That's a lifetime of, of work there. And so is it any wonder, Solomon says, who can find this woman, right? We're all kind of like, yeah, where do you find this, this woman? He says, she's hard to find and her worth is above rubies. But this is what you want to bring your future husband, something valuable. If you're an unmarried woman, prepare for marriage by starting to learn some of these skills. There's a lifetime of good work for women of, women of all ages in Proverbs 31. But you got to start somewhere, and in time and with diligence, God will make you fruitful. And that is what you should want to give your future husband, fruit. Psalm 128 calls the wife a fruitful vine. So start pruning, start cultivating yourself. God will bless it. I'll close with this. We've been talking in marriage about how the husband and the wife and Christ and the church, there's this constant pattern and mystery wherein both mutually inform us about the other. And if you think about Christ, he is the preeminent bridegroom. He is the fulfillment of this, this proverb, prepare thy work without, make it fit for thyself in the field, and afterwards build thine house. You think about Jesus. What did Jesus tell his disciples before his death? Why did he have to go away? John 14 says, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Before Christ marries the church, before the great wedding supper of the Lamb, Jesus prepared his outside work. He lived among men as a blue-collar worker, a, a, a carpenter, until he was 30. And then after he was anointed, he was tested in the wilderness. We, we read that, uh, Joe read that earlier this morning. Jesus preached, he healed, he labored in God's field until the sun went down. He goes to the cross, he conquers death, and he rises again. And in so doing, he prepares a place for us. He prepares and opens heaven for his bride. Before Christ marries the church, he prepares a home for us to dwell in so that we can live with him forever. And marriage is picturing that, right? That's what every household is meant to picture. We see also that the bride prepares herself. She becomes beautiful without spot or wrinkle or any blemish as she looks forward to her wedding day. Revelation 19.8 says, And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. 
And then you see in Revelation 21, how is the bride portrayed? Not as a single family house, but as the new Jerusalem, an entire city, vast and beautiful, streets of gold, gates made of pearls, a river of water flowing through it, and trees of life on both sides, bearing 12 fruits, each in its month. The bride is built into a fruitful garden city for Christ. And that is what a godly household points to. So we must work towards that. Prepare yourself for that. And whether you marry or never marry, know that that is the destination of all the faithful. That is the substance that the earthly uh, shadow of marriage points to. That is the glory that is to come. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for, for how you have been kind to us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for how you have prepared um, a place for us in heaven and that that is where we will spend eternity uh, together and with you. God, I ask that you would provide in these days that are evil, in these days of such corruption and compromise in the church, that you would provide uh, godly spouses for those who desire them. Pray this in Jesus' name. And amen. amen. The hope of the gospel is communion with God. Communion with God. And God in himself is nothing but pure love. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father, and the Spirit is the love that proceeds from them both. Love is the very essence of who God is. Although Scripture speaks of God's wrath, and judgment, and hatred of sin, none of these things are actually essential to God's being. God does not change, and there was no wrath in God before creation or the fall of mankind. God's wrath and anger are merely the masks that God puts on to scare us into repentance and to warn us of future punishment. That experience of wrath and punishment is real, very real, on the sinner's side. But the same cannot be said of God. For God is love, God is light, and in him is no darkness or shadow of change. This means we can never overstate the love and goodness of God. When you turn up the dial for God's love, it only goes one direction, and that is all the way. In this meal, we are given a little taste of that love and goodness of God, bread to help us endure the wilderness, and wine to remind us that Christ died to bring us to God. This is how much God loves you, so much that he would give you himself. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Amen. The charge is this. Um, one of the questions I didn't address in the sermon, because it's, I think, the harder question is, after you are ready, where do you look for a spouse? And there's not any easy answers to that question, but I want to encourage us as a relatively small congregation to be looking out for one another. Maybe there's an eligible man or woman you know at another church or in another state, or maybe you can be the connecting point between them. Uh, most people don't have the gift of matchmaking, but you don't have to have the gift of matchmaking to make simple introductions. That's something that anyone can do. So I want to encourage us to open our eyes to this as a church and to help in whatever way we can. Receive now the benediction. 
The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.